Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you may truly challenge us by the words of Jesus to understand what it is to follow Him and the demands that it makes on our lives and our hearts will wholeheartedly love you with everything that we have. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me ask you a question today. Are you someone that goes to church or are you someone that follows Jesus? Are you a churchgoer or are you someone that follows Jesus Christ? Now I think uh, it's a very different thing to be a churchgoer and someone who follows Jesus Christ. Uh, as a pastor once said, that many pastors today, many evangelists today are not really interested in making followers of Jesus Christ, but instead making people go to church. They want to grow their church, they want to fill their church, and so they, easy, they offer an easy message, the easy good news message to look for church growth. But it's very different from being a church goer to being a follower of Jesus because a church goer just gets to sing music, sit in the aircon, listen to sermons, have fellowship, eat food. But the follower of Jesus gets saved and has eternal life. Now Jesus is completely different to that sort of attitude. He's not interested in filling churches. He's interested in people who are seriously following Him and who live seriously. Serious followers who will follow Him seriously. And that's why as the big crowds come to Jesus, He is not particularly happy. right? If you you look at the, the Gospel of Luke, it's not as if He's overjoyed that there are big crowds coming to see Jesus because He realizes that that is just the first step. That they need to commit their lives to Him. And that's where we are at as we come to the second half of our uh, sermon series or Bible study series on the Gospel of Luke. Now, you may have noticed that last year we did the first half of Luke and we ended at chapter 9. Uh, that didn't just happen because, you know, we just ran out of weeks. Uh, but actually, that was the plan. You know, we actually have a plan here and we're following the plan. And Luke actually divides up into two parts. Okay, the, the book of Luke actually divides up into two parts. The first part of Luke, which details the ministry of Jesus, uh, is really from chapter 1 to 9, and it deals with the identity of Jesus. And the question that is trying to be answered there is, who is this man? Who is this Jesus? And uh, that's why the, the chapter 1 to 9 really deals with the revelation of Jesus. And revelation in the Bible usually has two parts. It has the action plus the explanation. It has the sign plus the interpretation. And that's what we see a lot in chapter 1 to 9. We see a lot of what Jesus is doing. And then we have an interpretation or an explanation of what it means that Jesus has done all these things. So there's a tension in the first part in chapter 1 to 9 where we're trying to work out who is Jesus and we're trying to wait for somebody in the story to finally see that Jesus is the Christ. So in chapter 9, verse 18 to 20, so if you turn to your Bibles, in Luke chapter 9, verse 18 to 20, which is just the page before the page was read to us by Mark, <coughs> this tension is resolved because um, in verse 18 of chapter 9, uh, it says, Once when Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowd say I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Verse 20, But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, God's Christ, or God's God's Messiah. So from that moment on, the first half of uh, Luke 
they sort of moved on to the second half. And as we come to the second half, the second part, the focus of um, Jesus' life and ministry and the Gospel of Luke changes. So geographically, uh, we see that Jesus now starts moving very deliberately towards Jerusalem. So if you can have the map. So uh, Jesus is up here around the Sea of Galilee when uh, he reveals, uh, well, Peter reveals who he is. And he starts moving towards Judea and this is Jerusalem. So for the rest of the journey in Luke, Jesus is making his way all the way down to Jerusalem. Many people say that's where the transfiguration took place and he starts moving down to Jerusalem. Okay, to Jerusalem where he will finally go to the cross as he predicts. So, as we come to the second half of Luke, we see that Jesus is gradually moving down south towards Jerusalem. And that's the direction geographically of his ministry. But his teaching also starts taking a different turn. Instead of telling people who is Jesus, who am I, Jesus starts clearly showing the demands of what it means to follow him. Right, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And that's where we are at today. Because <coughs> uh, in chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus is continuing to teach the disciples what does it mean to follow the Christ. So we come to the first part, verse 51 to 56. And uh, this continues on from uh, the, re- the earlier part of uh, chapter, to, uh, chapter 9, which we will refer to. And we can see those elements coming out, right? So in verse 51, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Okay, so geographically, Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. But I want you to notice something really interesting. Because if you and I were writing the gospel, we would say that as the time approached for him to be taken to the cross. But what does it say in verse 51? It says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. So Jerusalem is not just going to be a place where Jesus dies, but Jerusalem is going to be a place where Jesus rises from the dead, and not just rises from the dead, but goes up to heaven in glory. So Jerusalem is not just a place of sadness for Jesus, but will be a place of glory and honour for Jesus. So as Jesus moves through from the north down to Jerusalem, Jerusalem is here, okay? he moves through Samaria. You see Samaria here? Can you see this word Samaria? So he's moving through Samaria and he sends out his disciples before him to be messengers before him to prepare the way as he goes into the villages, the Samaritan villages in Samaria. And what happens? In verse 52, And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Now, Uh, Luke highlights to us that this was a Samaritan village and they rejected him purely because he was going towards Jerusalem. Now the Samaritans, who were the Samaritans? The Samaritans were originally Jews. The Samaritans were like long lost relatives of the Jews. Uh, Because of civil war and the division of the Jewish nation and through numerous conquests of foreign powers and exiles and deportations, they became very different from who they were before, the Jews. Uh, They were racially very different because they intermarried with different people, so they became racially different from the Jews. They were not pure anymore. They were religiously very different from the Jews because they no longer accepted the same books of the Old Testament as the Jews did. And they no longer practiced the same religion 
because they no longer recognize the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, if you see here, right, they no longer recognize the temple in Jerusalem as the place where they had to worship, but instead they recognize this place called Mount Gerizim as the place, as the center of their worship. So the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't get along. In fact, they hated one another. They would not eat together and they would stay in separate villages. So that's why the messengers went into a Samaritan village full of Samaritans. But the Samaritans did not welcome Jesus. Why? Because in verse 53, he, he was heading towards Jerusalem. They rejected Jesus not because uh, they didn't like his message, but just because he was a Jewish person. And how did the, the disciples react to this rejection by the Samaritans? Well, it says that they wanted to call, they, want, they asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Now, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the, the, the Samaritans, they hated the Jews and it showed in the rejection of Jesus. But the Jews, the disciples themselves who were Jewish, returned the favor and you can hear the anger and revenge in their voice. Isn't it? Lord, let us bring fire upon these Samaritans. Let us show them who's boss. You know, how dare they, res- they, 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 they respond to us in this way. But how does Jesus respond to the emotion of James and John. Jesus, it says in verse 35, turned and rebuked them. And de- then he and his disciples went to another village. Now, what are we meant to learn from this very short incident? What were the disciples meant to learn from this short incident? What was the lesson here? Well, I think the lesson here is about discipleship. It's about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, in the earlier part of chapter 9, uh, we learned that the disciples had an attitude problem. They thought that being a disciple of Jesus was about being great, about glory, power, authority. And they wanted people to respect them, they wanted the honor, they wanted the applause. And when they went to this town, what did they get instead? They got people who gave them the cold shoulder, people who rejected them, people who couldn't wait to see their backs. And that's why they got so angry. And that was partly the reason why they got so angry because instead of being accepted by the people, they were rejected by the people. But what was Jesus' answer instead? Well, Jesus, who was the Son of God, who should have received glory and honor and power, was happy to accept this rejection and to move on and to keep preaching the Word. Now, I wonder whether we have the same problem, the same attitude problem as His disciples. Uh, as Christians, do we look for approval, applause and honour from the world? And how do we reje- uh, respond when we are rejected or people give us the cold shoulder when we share the gospel with them? I don't know about you, but there are times where when I share the gospel with people and they're, they're rude to me, uh, my, 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 my subconscious thinking says, well, you can just go to hell, right? <laughs> right? Do, you ever, do you ever think like that? Or, you know, I wish God would just have this big fist come down from heaven and, and stomp them into the ground, right? Because they've rejected the message that I'm sharing them. And that was a mistake of the disciples, isn't it? They, they didn't like being rejected. They didn't like uh, the dishonor. And they wanted to be quick to condemn and to judge these Samaritans. But I think we need to learn from the example of Jesus. We need to re- recognize that as disciples, 
we will be rejected by people. We will get the cold shoulder. We will be ignored by people when we share the good news of Jesus Christ. But how should we respond? Should we respond with anger? Should we want God to crush them and to send them straight to hell? No, I think we should love them. We should keep sharing the gospel with them. We shouldn't give up sharing the gospel. We could move on to other people. But I think there's another message here, isn't it? Because why does Luke draw our attention in verse 52 and 53 to the fact that this was a Samaritan village and he was, Jesus was rejected because he was heading for Jerusalem. See, I think part of the reason why James and John were so angry and so quick to call judgment upon this village was because they were Jews and the Samaritans were Samaritans. They hated one another. I, I, I might be wrong you come and uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but I can't think of another passage in, uh, in the Gospels where uh, the, the, the disciples wanted to call down fire on a Jewish village. Right? Do you think that the disciples would have called down fire if it was a Jewish village? No, I think that the, the depth of their anger came because they were Jews and they were rejected by Samaritans. Now, Jesus is not like that as well, isn't it? Jesus was a Jew, but he wanted to save the Samaritans. For him, saving souls was more important than national, cultural, or racial identity. See, if you look carefully at me, in verse 56, then he and his disciples went to, it says there, another village. What village would they go to? They were, they were in a Samaritan area, right? They didn't go to another Jewish village, but most probably, as many commentators said, he took them to another Samaritan village. Now, I wonder whether we have learned that, learned that lesson as disciples of Jesus. Do we still see people in terms of their cultural, their racial, or their national identity? And we are only attracted to want to save people who are like us. So, you know, James and John, they, they were probably attracted to people, saving people who are Jews. But Jesus wanted to save the Samaritans even if he was rejected by them. I wonder whether we are like that. I wonder whether we only want to reach out to people who are just like us. So I'll, I remember a, a Singaporean missionary couple who are missionaries in Wales. Uh, seems like a strange place to go to be missionaries. But anyway, they're, they're in Wales and um, they were telling me about how in order to reach out to the mainland students um, in, uh, in Wales, they, they were the wife of the, the, the missionary was cooking Chinese food in the church. But obviously, I suppose for the Welsh, <coughs> they're not used to that sort of garlic cooking, right? So the pastor's wife came and rebuked her and said, don't cook that rubbish here anymore. And I, I felt really sad. Isn't it? I remember the, the, the wife of uh, the missionary actually said, she, she actually cried because of that. Because it seemed as if they were more interested in making people Welsh than to save their souls. I have a friend of mine in Australia, in Sydney, he is from Macau, the wife is from Hong Kong, and they went to a church which was supposed to be very Bible-believing, very evangelical. And for one year, they said they tried to fit into this church, but they couldn't fit in. Because racially, they were different, culturally, they were different, and this church was a rich church, and they were not rich. You see, isn't this so different from Jesus? Because for Jesus, the important thing was saving souls and not making the church a cultural, racial, or social club. 
Right? They, Jesus was willing to make sacrifices and to face rejection to go out to save people who were different than they were. Uh, even for myself, I remember an incident many years ago where a young man who was an Indian student uh, was in Singapore and he came to church, not our church, right? And uh, I remember there was an elder in that church who, who made an Indian joke, okay? Now, you might all nod your head and say that's terrible, but I know that people do make racial jokes, right? He made an Indian joke and his body language showed that he didn't really welcome this Indian man, this Indian student. And as a result, this Indian man left the church. Now, how sad that was, isn't it? Because this man was not thinking like Jesus. He was not reaching out to people different from himself. He only wanted to save people or welcome people like himself. So, the first lesson we learn about discipleship is, discipleship is not about applause or reception and glory and uh, people welcoming us, but rejection and ridicule. But at the same time, even as we face rejection and ridicule, we go out with the gospel. We save people and, and we also save people who are different from us. We don't just save people who are like us, racially, socially, culturally. But Jesus wants to save souls. And every soul is important regardless of how they look, how they sound, or what they're like. Now, the passage then moves to three short uh, stories or three short snippets of real people. This is not a parable, right? These are not parables. Verse 57 to 62 is not parables. They are real people who are interacting with Jesus as he walks the journey from the north to the south, some anonymous road somewhere he's meeting people. And in each of these incidents, there is a disciple or potential disciple of Jesus who Jesus instructs because there is some failing in their life. So the first person in uh, verse 57, we don't know much about these people. We don't know their names. We don't know what they look like, what they do. But we do know that they are coming to Jesus or walking with Jesus at this time. So verse 57, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, uh, on the face of it, this man is a very praiseworthy, commendable man. Because he says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Uh, If it was you or me, and somebody came to church and said, I will follow Jesus wherever you go, I'll probably... My next question to him would be, uh, which Bible study do you want to join? Right, okay. But what does Jesus say to him instead? Well, he almost sort of rebukes him, right? Each of these is, is a bit of a rebuke. He says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is basically saying, in a very profound and deep way, that if you choose to follow Jesus, uh, you will be like me. You will have no home in this world. You will have no home in this world because even the beasts, the foxes and the birds of the air, they find their home in this world. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. There is no place right, where he can call home. Right? He's got no place to put his hat. Okay? He's got no, no place where he can find home in this world. And I think that's a really, really profound and deep challenge for us today as Christians in Singapore. Because in our attitude to life and our outlook in life, 
we must be like Jesus where we see ourselves going through our 60, 70, 80 years in this world as an alien, as a stranger, as a wanderer passing through and going to our real home. Now these are very demanding words because I think that for myself, living in Singapore, it's very easy to, to find comfort and home in Singapore or wherever you come from, Australia or New Zealand. Right? I mean, it's, it's so easy to find a home there. I imagine living as a Christian in maybe a place like Saudi Arabia, Pakistan or maybe even Vietnam. I might say, yes, yes, okay. As a Christian, this is not my real home. My real home is heaven because I'm being persecuted all the time. We were praying about all the persecuted Christians at the prayer meeting on Friday. And pers- you know, if you read about all the people being locked up in jail or being persecuted, you can think, yes, if I lived in that society, that is not my home. My home is in heaven. But if you live in Singapore or you live in you know, some Western country, it's so easy for us as Christians to think this is home. So in, the, in your thinking, in your choices, um, in the way that you live, the, the friends that you have, the car that you drive, the house you live in, the job you, you, you have, the person you want to marry, does that show that you see yourself at home here or that home is really in heaven? I remember meeting up for lunch one day with a Christian man who was in charge of missions in his church. And uh, as we were having our lunch, uh, suddenly this older man bumped into my friend and uh, he hadn't seen him for many years. And my friend said to him, Oh, where have you been? I haven't seen you. He said, Oh, I've migrated to Perth. Okay, this is not Quequin, okay? This is, not, this is somebody else, alright? So in case you, you know, I don't want Quequin to SMS me or email, Hey, you're giving, you know, using me as a sermon illustration. Okay, this is not Quequin, okay? So this man had migrated to Perth. <coughs> so my friend asked him, So, but, but what do you do? Spend your days doing? So I love looking after my house and I love gardening. So I spend my whole day looking after the house and looking after my garden. All these roses or something. He showed us all these pictures. So anyway, after he left, my friend was really upset. My friend who was the, the mission person. And he said, why? I, I said, why are you so upset? He says, you know, because this man, he's uh, retired. He said he's too comfortable in this world and he's too much at home in this world. He lives for his house and his garden. He said he could be doing so much more for his, in his life for the kingdom. He could be helping out in church, he could be doing mission work, he's, he's still very, quite young, relatively young and healthy. He could be praying, he could be doing all these things, but instead, all his energy is making his house really nice and tending to his garden. Now, isn't that different from what Jesus is saying here? He says, if you want to follow me, Right? I have no place to lay my head. This is not home for us. We cannot love this world so much. We must look forward to our eternal home. But Jesus, I think also in this verse, says that it's not just the attitude and outlook in life that is affected, but the reality and the reception of the world when we become Christians. Isn't it? What, what happened to Jesus? Jesus was not loved. He was rejected and scorned by the world he was hung on a cross. And if you're a Christian, you better be ready for that. Because if you're not ready for that, and you want the world to love you, you will not follow Jesus. 
See, I think Jesus sees into the heart of this man in verse 57. This man is walking with Jesus, the crowds are there, the disciples are there, and he's caught up in the excitement of following Jesus. You know, it's very easy to do, right? But Jesus says to this man, what happens when the excitement ends? What happens when the music stops? What happens when you leave church and go out into the real world where the colleagues no longer accept you, where your relatives give you a hard time, where your friends give you a cold shoulder? What happens when you take yourself out of that nice church, exciting environment where the music is and you put yourself where the real world is, where there's rejection? Will you still be able to keep going as a Christian? Because that's what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? He's saying the reality is the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Why? Because the world hates the Son of Man. You cannot love this world too much, but you also cannot love the praise of this world, isn't it? If you're looking for the praise of this world, the love of this world, then you will not be able to persevere as a Christian. In verse 59, Jesus then says to another man, the previous man came to Jesus, now Jesus uh, says to another anonymous person, follow me. So this man replies, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, uh, seems like uh, what the man is asking for is a very reasonable thing because they live in a patriarchal society where uh, the man, the father, is supposed to be the most important member of the family. And as a Jew, uh, the fifth commandment was to honour your parents. And one of the, the ways that you honour your parents was to give them an honourable burial. So here, uh, what this man says in verse uh, 15, 59 is almost like the perfect reason to delay following Jesus. Uh, we, we, we make these excuses all the time, right? It's like, uh, I'm sure some of you get calls from telemarketers, right? And then, you know, do you want to get this bank loan? Do you want to get this credit card and everything? So I always have the perfect excuse. I always say, oh, I have to ask my wife. Okay? So, so this is what, this, this, is what this, this, uh, this man is doing, right? He's like saying, okay, this is the, most, the best excuse I have. I've got to bury my father. Now, we don't know if his father hasn't died or died yet. But Jesus is very harsh with this man. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. And what he's saying is, is it's a figurative, metaphorical uh, language where let those who are spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Let those who do not have the kingdom priorities, who are not in the kingdom of God, bury their own dead. So what Jesus is saying is you cannot delay. There is no excuse. There is no excuse acceptable in delay following Jesus. Now, what I want to make very clear to you, and I hope you're listening very clearly, is this passage is not an excuse to not honour your parents. Okay? This passage is not saying that you do not have to bury your parents or honour them. Because the other parts of the Bible will say very clearly as Christians that we are to honour our parents. Uh, apparently, I heard that someone in the prosperity gospel preached on this passage and said, because of this passage, you should not give money to your parents, but give to the church instead. Okay? Now, that's not what this passage is saying. The whole point about this passage is delay. Okay, delay. There is no reason, no excuse that you can give to delay following Jesus. 
Now, I think that's a really important thing for some of you here that I know have yet to really give yourself to following Jesus. You've attended classes, you have studied the Bible, you know about Jesus. And the question is not about information. You have enough information. The question is about will, decision-making. And if that's who you are, and that's where you are today, then you need to listen to Jesus' warning. There is no excuse for delaying following Jesus. You need to follow Jesus now. You cannot, there is no excuse. There is no excuse. Some people say, oh, I've got to wait for my exams to finish. I've got to finish my, uh, my career. I want to retire. I've got to wait till my children grow up. These, these excuses are not valid and they're not real before God. You need to make a decision now. But I want you to notice also what Jesus says in the second half of that verse, isn't it? Let the dead bury their own dead. Now, if, uh, if you and I were writing this, we would probably say, and then you come and follow me. Isn't that what, I mean, isn't that what the question was? It says, follow me, right, in verse 59. Then Jesus says, in verse 60, let the dead bury their own dead, and then you come and follow me. That's the way that I would have written it, or that was what I would say if I was Jesus. But notice what Jesus says instead. But he says, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So I think that even as Christians, even as disciples, this is a, a lesson to us. That when we become Christians, we must not delay going out and proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now, I know that for myself, I make a lot of excuses for myself and not proclaiming the kingdom of God to people. I, I must confess that I have a neighbour that moved in uh, to my next door to my dad's house three years, uh, actually more than three years ago, but it's taken me three years to actually try to evangelise them. Why does it take so long? Because I've got a lot of excuses, isn't it? Oh, they're never home. Oh, when they're home, I'm, I'm, I'm not home. Uh, when they're home, I'm too busy. When, when they're home, they're too busy. Right? I never get to see them anyway. Right? They won't like it. But look at what it says. Look at what verse 60 says. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So I wonder what excuses do you have to delay? Not just accepting Christ and following Him, but to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. What excuses do we make for ourselves where instead of speaking to our neighbour, instead of speaking to our colleague, our relative, we make all these excuses of not going out and proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now verse 61 is the third, the third and the last person. It says, still another said, I will follow you Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Uh, Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now again, what this man says in verse 61 seems very reasonable. But yet Jesus is not like us. I mean, if any of these three people came and said all these things to us, I don't know about you, but to me, I'll probably say, yeah, okay, go and bury your father. Yes, you know, go and say goodbye to your family. But Jesus is able to look into this person's heart. He knows his inner thoughts, right? That's one of the qualities of Jesus. He knows what people are thinking. And he sees that actually the desire to want to go and say goodbye is actually a longing for the previous life. He actually looks back with longing and nostalgia at his previous life. He's like, this man is like Israel when they were in the desert who wants to go back to Egypt. Uh, this man is like Lot who, as she was leaving Sodom, turned back to look at Sodom. And Israel suffered for 40 years in the desert because she wanted to go back to Egypt. And Lot 
turn into a pillar of salt. So Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must not look back. You must not look back. You must look ahead. And he uses the analogy of ploughing. Now, uh, we're not very familiar with this, right? Um, uh, I don't know. I remember when I was in Australia for a little while, I had to mow the lawn. If you want to mow the lawn in a straight line, what do you do? You can't look down, because when you look down, you just get curvy lines, right? And you can't look backwards, because then you don't know where you're going, you run into the tree. You need to look at a spot right far in the distance and keep going towards a spot. Then you just have these straight lines. And even more so, when, they are, when you're ploughing, apparently, you have uh, the oxen, right? Those two oxen. Okay, I won't show you any more uh, oxen anymore, because people always say I'll show too many oxen on the LCD, right? But you have the oxen there, two oxen, and they're, and they're always, they're not like a motorized engine, right? They want to go their own way. And then you've got this plough, and there are rocks in the field, so that, you know, that the plough is always going everywhere. So you really need to pay attention if you want to plough in a straight line as a farmer. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If you want to follow me, you must keep looking ahead. You must be focused. You must concentrate instead of looking back. And that was the problem with this man. He wanted to go back and say goodbye to his family. But actually in his heart, he wanted to go back to his previous life. So I wonder for ourselves, do you look back wistfully, regretfully, nostalgically to the time when before you were a Christian? you ever look back at the things that you used to do before you were a Christian and think, wouldn't it be good if I did those things again? Do you ever look back and regret the things that you could have done before you were a Christian? Maybe the romances that you never had or the career that you could have done or the money that you could have made or the status that you could have achieved or the lost opportunities that you lost because you were a Christian. Well, Jesus says, if you look back and you keep looking back and say, I wish I could have done all those things before I was a Christian, then you are not fit for service in the kingdom of God. You are not a follower of His. You are not a disciple of His. So as we come to the end of this section, the question is, are we, are you a churchgoer or are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Do you come to church or do you follow Jesus? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Because Jesus is not interested in churchgoers. He wants followers. He wants people who are willing to serve and to sacrifice to save souls. He wants people who will have no home in this world but look for a home in heaven. He wants people who will have no delay in following Him and preaching the gospel. He will have no one but only those who are single-minded and who will not look back. Now I know that um, when you use a computer, you know usually when you download all the software, right? Before they let you download, there's always the terms and conditions. And I never read them, you just click accept, right? Okay. I mean, who has time to read all those pages of stuff anyway, right? But the thing is, when you come to really important decisions in your life, like uh, if you buy a car, you're going to sign a car loan. If you buy a house, you're going to sign a mortgage. Then you, re- you pay really close attention to what is demanded and required of you, isn't it? I, I mean, when you, when you buy a house, you even get the lawyer to explain to you what the terms and conditions mean. How much more when we become followers of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't hide behind the fine print. He sets out very clearly that if you want to follow Him, it is unwavering commitment. It is unstinting 
in following Him. That's what it means to become a Christian. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That you must leave everything behind. This is not your home. You must look to heaven. You must share the same values as Jesus. You must be willing to accept hardship to share the gospel. You must be single-minded and not look back and say, I wish I could have done all those things when I was not a Christian. So I pray for each and every one of us that we are not churchgoers, but that we are all followers of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that Jesus knows our hearts, that your Son is able to see into the hearts of men with their excuses, with their hypocrisy, with their double-mindedness. And we too share the same weaknesses, all of us here, men and women. We confess to you that there are times where we struggle with single-minded devotion in following Jesus, where we, we look back nostalgically at the things that we could have done before we were Christians. We struggle with the urgency of following Jesus and preaching the gospel. We struggle with the, the rejection of the world and finding applause and the love of people. And dear Father, help us to see that we struggle also with always wanting to be finding a home, finding comfort and security in this world. But help us to see how radically different it is when we become followers of Jesus. That all of these things should not matter, but we should follow Jesus in everything that we do. Dear Father, help us to be serious followers of Jesus who do all things seriously before Him. And not to just come to church and fool ourselves, to be taken up by the excitement or the music or the activities, but to see just what we need to be doing as we choose Jesus. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.